good to be back with you guys. And honestly, it feels a little weird to be up here after 10 or so months away. The last 10 or so months, I've just been sitting in a pew hanging out and doing that. But I am excited to be back. And uh, things are good, uh, despite the fact that I have less hair and more weight than when I left, you know. It's all right. Allison and I are doing really well. She's coping with this, okay? Um, also, uh, I'm happy to report that we survived another year of uh, distance learning with four kids. And so I can say this beyond a shadow of a doubt, just like we see in the book of Acts, miracles happen every day, every single day. And so uh, I am excited to be back. We are continuing in this series in the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to find them, grab them out. You want to find Acts chapter 2. Verse 14, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, we are in week 7 of this series, I think we've covered 40 some odd verses up until this point, and today I'm going to try to cover like 30 verses in 30 minutes, and so here we go, buckle up, it's going to get fun, all right, but as we study the book of Acts, we need to understand the book of Acts is a record of the actions of the early church, that's what it is, uh, but a lot of things happen, almost you have to study Acts at the map, because the church just starts to move and starts to, to, to do things. And I've actually been studying the book of Acts for this last year in a Bible study in a small group that we have every week. And one of the guys in our Bible study, Rob Petrakowski, he's sitting right over here. You're going to meet him a little bit later because he's going to be baptized today. Yeah, we're excited about that. Rob actually gave us a great analogy for how to understand the book of Acts in week one of our study. He said the book of Acts is a lot like a target. Now, a target is usually something that a guy shoots at and a girl shops at, okay? That's what a target is, okay? A target, and what I mean by that is it's, it's a expanding circles. And what we see inside of the book of Acts is the expanding of the gospel. Today, in Acts chapter 2, we are going to start at the epicenter, the bullseye of this target. And from here on out, as we study this book together, we're going to see the gospel expand further and further out. Today, we're actually not going to look at any of the actions of the early church because rather, we're going to spend our entire time studying a single sermon, a very famous sermon, because this is the first Christian sermon ever preached. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. And I don't know if you know this, but today is Pentecost Sunday. This is the day that the church celebrates what happened back then, the very thing that we're going to study here together. But as we jump into this Pentecost sermon, one thing we have to understand is that it's actually not really a sermon at all. For Peter didn't wake up that morning expecting to go preach a sermon like I did this morning. Peter actually had no idea that this was going to happen minutes before it did, but rather something miraculous ju just took place. We studied about it last week. Steve talked about when the Holy Ghost showed up or when the Holy Spirit descended, and it was a miraculous event. There was a rushing wind, and there was tongues of fire. How many here saw the tongues of fire last week when Steve held a blowtorch like with an inch of his head? The entire time I was like, he's going to scald his scalp. He's going to scald his scalp. I'm going to laugh. No, I'm not just, it's, I was terrified for him. And I'm like, I'm not bringing a blowtorch. I'm bald. Okay, so here's this tongues of fire. Here's this wind that happened. And then there's the speaking of tongues. It's this huge, miraculous event. And what verse 6 tells us is it raised such a commotion that basically Jerusalem came out to see what was going on. So a large crowd is now gathered, and Peter, seeing the opportunity before him, 
he steps forward not to preach a sermon, but rather to explain to the crowd what just happened. He's going to explain to the crowd what this is all about. And as I was studying and preparing for this sermon this week, I realized that what Peter is going to do is he's going to deliver the first three-point message. Thousands of years before Baptists existed, here's a three-point sermon, okay? (laughs) And so because I'm not really original, all I'm going to do is repeat Peter's sermon to you in a way that we can understand it. And this is broken up into three pieces, and I studied a lot, and there's a lot of commentaries that helped me gather to this thought right here. But let's go ahead. Enough of that. Let's jump in. We're going to start on verse 14. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd. He had to shout because there's thousands. All right, I'm going to say over 10,000 people have gathered. So Peter is shouting to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's much too early for that. Which, if you're like me, you're like, wait, what? Hold the phone. Because like, so if this is 5 o'clock, there's a chance. I don't know, you know, what's going on? Happy hour. No, that's not what Peter's saying. Why does Peter mention 9 o'clock? Because right now in the crowd, what's going on? They're trying to figure out what just happened. You literally have men from Galilee speaking languages from all over the world. They're saying, how is this possible? They must be drunk. And the reason why Peter points them to the hour of the day is because Jewish men and women back then would never eat or drink until after 9 o'clock, especially on a holy day, because 9 o'clock is the first hour of prayer. And so they would go do business with God before they would take a meal. And so they would always wait till after 9 o'clock. And so what Peter is doing in this moment, he's saying it's impossible for them to be drunk because they haven't eaten or drinking anything like you haven't eaten or drinking anything. So something else is going on here. Something else is, is happening. And this brings me to my first point. Peter's first explanation. He's going to explain what just happened. What just happened. To do that, we need to read a little bit of scripture. Peter goes on to say this in verse 16. Now what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so what Peter is doing right here, is says, if you want to know what happened, newly infused with the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit, Peter steps forward and he begins to quote a prophecy that was given hundreds if not thousands of years before. A prophecy that was spoken by the prophet Joel. And if you read the book of Joel, it's a small book. What Joel does the entire time, he's saying, prepare For the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Prepare yourself. And what Peter does in this moment is he's saying, you know that thing that you've been preparing for? You know that thing that the prophets told you about over and over and over again? It just happened. It has just happened. The day of the Lord is here. 
Guess what, church? We're living in the end days. And that's not something that just happened in 2020. That's something that's been happening for the last 2,000 years because the spirit has landed. Or like Steve said, the ghost has landed. And this event that we see happen on Pentecost Sunday 2,000 years ago marked a new era for the church. Or rather, this thing that happened is now going to change the way that God will forever interact with his creation. No longer was God going to be content to be with them. God was now going to be in them. And this is what he's saying. He says, I will be in them. And here's what we have to understand. Here's what we must understand is is this changed everything and it's still changing everything. The ghost is here. If you didn't have a chance uh, a few weeks ago, Justin, who was just up here, he preached an amazing message on who the Holy Spirit is. Go back and listen to it. It's awesome. But what we also must understand is, is when we read this section of scripture, we must not read it just like a history book. This is not just something that happened back then, but rather this is something that is still happening right here and right now. The same power, the same Holy Spirit that showed his face back then is showing his face right here and right now. God didn't just pour out his spirit. When it says God poured out his spirit, it's not like he took like a little water bottle and like, boop, here you're good. No, it's like a torrential downpour. This is an overwhelming sense of God's very spirit poured out upon his people and God didn't just like pour it out and then turn off the tap that's not what God did God says I'm opening up the floodgates never to be shut off again my power is with them we know this to be true because we see it throughout scripture we see this really really clearly through Paul's words in Romans 8 11 says the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Paul wasn't just talking to the people in Rome. Paul was talking to us. He says, the spirit is living within you. What is the spirit here to do? The Bible's really clear about that. Acts 1.8 says this, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses throughout the whole world, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will receive my power. Crosspoint. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have received the power of the Holy Spirit, the true living God himself. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> right? You've received the power. But let's be honest. In my day-to-day, I don't know how much power I'm experiencing. In my commute, I don't know how much power I'm experiencing. As we go throughout kind of just the, the motions of life, I don't know about you, but I find myself experiencing weakness, not power. And now as I was kind of preparing this sermon And as I was meditating on this week, I became convinced of this. I believe the reason that that we might not be experiencing the power that the Spirit has poured out upon us is not because of a lack of availability. It is not because of a lack of accessibility, but rather it's a lack of desire of our own. It's because far too many of us have began to seek power in other things instead of power in the source that has been given to us. About a week ago, I was at this little work seminar, and I heard this story that I feel like is so fitting to this. The, the guy who was giving the seminar, he told a story about driving down the freeway, and 
As he was driving down the freeway, he saw a Tesla pulled over on the side of the freeway, and the guy was standing outside of this Tesla holding a gas can up and pointing to the gas can, to which the guy goes, i got to figure out what this is all about. This is too good. So, like, he pulled over not to help him out, but just to, like, okay, what's going on? What did you smoke this morning? Okay? No. So he's sitting there. He pulled over, and he's, he's going across the guy. He goes, oh, what's going on? The guy goes, I, I ran out of gas. Huh. You drive a Tesla. I didn't think those needed that. He says, no, no, I, I can't get going. I need gas. He goes, what are you using the gas for? I go, I use it to fuel my generator. And he walked in the side of the car, and the guy has a generator next to his Tesla, and his Tesla plugged into it. And he says, my generator ran out of gas. I can't go anywhere. <laughs> I feel like you missed a step in the sales pitch of a Tesla. <laughs> Funny. By the way, if any of you ever see a guy in a Tesla with a gas can, call me. I will leave work because I want to meet that guy, Right? <laughs> And we laugh, but as I heard that story that last week, I was like, huh. Yeah, that's how I follow Jesus. We've been given a design, we've been given this power, but so many of us don't tap into it. Instead, we fall back to our old ways, carrying a gas can around, saying, I can't trust that, I, I have to have this. How many of us are tapping into the wrong source of power right now? How many of us are trying to tap into our intellect, our charisma, our self-worth, our, our perseverance, our wealth, our performance, our security, our significant others, our legacy, our kids, our accomplishments? And yet, we, what do we do? We find ourselves abandoned on the side of the road, on empty begging. Meanwhile, the ghost has landed, and there is an unlimited source of power to do everything that he has called you to do. It's available right now. You just need to plug in. Which brings me to my first question today. What source of power are you tapping into right now? Is what Peter is doing. He says, if you want to know what just happened, the ghost has landed. The power, the infinite power of God is now available to you. Are you using it? Are you choosing to tap into something else? But after Peter states what just happened, he's going to go on to explain how everything that just happened was possible. Because not enough just to know what happened, we have to then begin to know how it happened, correct? So that's the next thing he's going to do. And as we jump back into verse 22, let me, let me explain some things first. I'm actually going to summarize it up for us. What, what Peter's going to do in the next like 16 verses or so, he's going to say, this is all possible because of no one. Jesus, I heard one of you, you're probably in my youth group, right? This is the church answer. This is the one answer you can always get right. Pastor, ever asks this question? It's Jesus, okay? He says, this is all possible because of Jesus. Now, some of you are really upset because I just gave the ending away, but I'm the type of guy who reads the last chapter because I don't like surprises, okay? That's who I am, and I'm giving it to you. But also the reason why I'm giving it to you right now is I want you to understand that in these next 16 verses, what Peter's going to do is he's going to give four pieces of evidence to the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the son of man. He is the alpha and the omega. He is a part of the Godhead, right? He is the savior. He is the Messiah. With that being said, let's go. Verse 22, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles and wonders and signs through him, as you well know. 
But God knew what would happen, and in his prearranged plan was, crucif- was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God, but God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in his grip. The first evidence that Peter is going to lob into the crowd is the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. He says, Jesus was fully man. You all witnessed him. You met him. But he is also fully God. And the reason why we know he's fully God is because he beat death. Here's the thing, Christians. Everything we believe hinges on this one truth. For Jesus did not raise from the dead, what the Bible says is we are fools to be pitied. Everything you know, hinges on this fact. And so this is where Peter starts out. The first proof that we can say that we can trust Jesus, that Jesus is the reason why the Spirit has come, is because he is not just a man. He is God. Let's continue to go. Verse 25 says this. King David said this about him. So now he's going to quote, right? This is like the rock star of all rock stars for Jewish men and women, right? This is the king himself. And so they trust what King David said. All right, so he starts to quote the king. He says this, King David said this about him. About who? About Jesus. Thank you. You're catching on. We're getting there. All right. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad, and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Then Peter goes on to say this, Dear brothers, think about this. I love how sarcastic he is, by the way. He just called them dumb, right? Don't be dumb. Think about this is what he's saying, right? You can be sure that the patriarch David, that King David, wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. It's like right over there. He's still there. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that the one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. The second piece of evidence that Peter hands out for the proof that Jesus is the reason for the Holy Spirit coming is the prophecies. He says, this shouldn't be a surprise to you, for we've been told about this for centuries Rather, there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that predicted what Jesus would do. Do you know Jesus fulfilled over 300? Some, some theologians would say he fulfilled over 500 prophecies. All of them came true. And yet, you know it's a mathematic impossibility, by the way, for someone to fulfill 300 plus prophecies and not be the person? Mathematically impossible, right? And yet some of us still have a hard time believing But on the other hand, like our kid gets like 1A and we simply, he's a genius. He's going to be a doctor. I'm like, no, he was lucky. The teacher wanted to get rid of him. All right. Like he's not a genius. And yet we find this difficult to believe. What Peter does in this moment is he's saying we can trust that Jesus is the reason because he fulfilled all the prophecies. Let's continue to go. The third thing, the third evidence for Jesus being the Messiah. We're going to pick it back up in verse 32. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we all are witnesses of this. 
right? He says, you want a third evidence for the truth that Jesus is the reason? He says, I point to you them right now. You know what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us? Paul records that not only Peter and all the apostles interacted with the resurrected Jesus, right? With Jesus after he rose from the dead, he says, but also over 500 at one time saw Jesus in his resurrected form. And so what I believe Peter is doing on the day of Pentecost, he says, we know this to be true. We know that Jesus rose from the grave because you saw him. And in that crowd that day, he's pointing them out, right? He's saying, Mike, you saw him. I know you did. I was with you when you saw him, right? He's pointing out and saying, Rod, we were there when we ate fish with Jesus. We know that Jesus conquered death because we were all witnesses. And if you don't believe me, believe them. It's the third piece of evidence that Peter says Jesus is who he says he is, and he is the reason why the ghost has came. He is the reason why we're in end times. And the last reason starts in verse 33. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven, at God's right hand. And the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us. Just as you have seen and heard today, for David himself never incited into heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The very last piece of evidence is like kind of the capstone. He says the reason why we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the reason is because what you all just witnessed. What just happened here right now, the Holy Spirit himself has been poured out because all of us right here are just farmers from out in the country. There's no way we could have just done what you saw us do unless God himself has filled us. But as, as Peter was pronouncing this truth, there is a sad reality that is going on. A sad reality is going on, and that's the reality of this, that by and large, the people in that crowd that day, even though they are God-fearing Jews, even though they have spent their entire life seeking after the Messiah, they had missed him. They had missed it. Get that? These are Jewish men and women that have spent their entire life searching for the Messiah, and the Messiah was with them, and they missed it. Why did they miss it? I'm going to argue it's because they were searching for the wrong thing. They were searching for a Messiah to come and rescue them from Rome because they thought Rome was the biggest threat. But what they didn't understand is the biggest threat was themselves, was their own sin. And Jesus did not come to rescue them from Rome. Jesus came to rescue them from themselves. And what we need to understand, church, is we can't look back on saying, and say, oh, shame on them. This is a problem they have because no, 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 no. This is a problem that we have. Let's be honest, they're not the only ones to miss Jesus. So many of us today are going to miss Jesus. The Bible says, wide is the road to destruction, narrow is the path, right? So many of us are going to miss Jesus. Why? Because just like them, we're searching for the wrong thing. We're searching for a political savior. We're searching for a marriage miracle worker. We're searching for a kid silencer because that's just me. Okay, right, fill in the blank. We're searching for the wrong things. And so just like them, we run the risk of missing him. So that's my next question for you, is how do you miss Jesus? Be honest with yourself. Have you missed Jesus today?
Have you missed Jesus this week? Or have you missed Jesus this lifetime? The truth is, there may be some of you here today that have never accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and I am going to plead with you, don't miss it. This is worthy of your time and attention that you would press in, that you would not miss who he is. What a shame to miss the greatest gift that has ever been given. Now, let's get to this last point. And the last thing that, that Peter is going to do is now he's explained what happened, and he explained how it was possible. Now he's going to finish off by saying why this really matters. Why all of this really matters. And do that, we're going to pick it up in verse 36. Peter says this, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what, must, what should we do? Saying, what must we do to be saved? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, to your children, and to those who are far away, all who have ever been called by the Lord our God. He says, this is what you must do. This is why all of this has happened. That you, all of you, all of them that day, and all of you here today might have a chance to believe. He says, this is why Jesus showed up just the way he did. This is why the Holy Spirit showed up just the way he did. Not that you might just pass it on by. Not that you would just continue to miss it. But rather that you might see him for who he is. And then after you see him, I love Peter because he never, like, pulls a punch. He's blunt, all right? He just kind of says that how it is. He makes a fool of himself. And then Peter right here comes out of the gate swinging. And what he says is, if you want to take hold of this gift that God has given you, you must do one thing, and that is you must repent. And let's be honest. That word is slightly offensive. It's offensive to us. Why? Because when someone says you must repent, it's the fact that we have to admit that we're not doing something right. When someone says we must repent, it means that we must have to give something up. It, must be, it means we have to turn from something. Again, that's what it says right here. You have to turn from what you're doing. That's all repentance is. It's turning from doing one thing in order to do something else. Turning from walking away from God in order that you might walk to God. And that's the key. Why? Because real power comes from repentance, right? Jesus did not die on the cross that you might just continue doing what you were doing, but rather Jesus died upon the cross that you might be freed to do something new, that you might be free to make a turn. But here's the deal. Because of how hard repentance is, and guys, repentance is hard. Breaking old habits is hard. Breaking off relationships is hard. Right? Getting rid of things that you were clinging to is hard. Sin is fun. Repentance is hard. So what do we do? We stop short. What do we do? I feel far too many of us quit before we ever get there. Far too many of us have exchanged repentance for something else. We've exchanged repentance for confession. And we have become a confessional society. We are quit, quick to admit to our sin. We are slow to turn from it. 
I'm going to date myself right now. Um, when I was in high school, there was a show that I watched all the time. It's not a good show, all right? I had to repent of it. It was on MTV. It was called Real World. Any Real Worlders in here? All right? 90s kid right here. Okay. The original reality TV show, Real World, they threw everybody in a house, and it was like chaos, much drama as they could possibly have. It's like a soap opera in real life, okay? But a part of Real World, they had this, this one area, one room in the house, and it was called the confession booth. And what we see happen inside Real World is the, these people, they would go inside this booth, and they would, like, pour out their guts, they would talk about everything they hated about the other person. They would talk about everything that they did wrong. And then what do we see them do? We see them leave the room and go right back to it. Every time. And I feel like that's how many of us interact with God. We, we go away to a camp. We, we go to church on the weekend. We're filled with shame. We're filled with guilt. We come before God. We lay out all our sins before him. Look at all that I have done wrong. We feel like this, like, lifting. Oh, I admitted to it. And then what do we do? We, we close the door, and we go right back to it. Never once trying to repent. But what we must understand is God did not give you the infinite power of the Holy Spirit just to admit to your wrongs. God gave you the infinite power of the Holy Spirit that you might be freed from your wrongs. Church, my question for you today is, is what do you need to turn from? What do you need to turn from? Here's the beauty. Here's the beauty is, is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That means there is no shame. In repentance, there is just glory. You know, as I was preparing this sermon this week, you can't write a passage on repentance and just be like, okay, I'm just going to, that's just something I'm going to say. That's not something I'm going to do, because then, like, the Holy Spirit comes and, like, crushes you like a bug. <clears throat> so, on Wednesday, um, I work in an office. I'm a project manager these days, and it's been a difficult few weeks, and, uh, I was a little bit overwhelmed. And I don't know about you, but when I get overwhelmed, I like hunker down because I'm a man. We're not supposed to ask for directions. We're not supposed to ask for help. We're supposed to figure it out on our own. So I go in like man mode. And what I do is like self-reliance. I'm going to do it all. All right. And so I'm trying to like through all my experience in the trade and through everything I have, trying to figure out all these problems. And then as I'm doing that, I'm sitting in my office. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon or something. And all God's like, huh, I feel like you need to turn from something. You need to turn from pride. Because who do you think you are to think you can do this by yourself? So all my cards on the table, I was about ready to make a really difficult phone call with all my own wisdom. Instead, I closed my door. And I said, God, not my will, but your will be done. God, I, I think I have a plan. But now I need yours. And I'm not perfect, guys, because the next day I just went back to my old patterns, and so I need to repent again. But then later that night, God says, I'm not done with you yet. I think you need to turn from something else because uh, all week I've been waking up 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, stressed out. And God says, now you need to repent of fear. For what are you afraid of? Do you remember who you are? You're mine. I have you. Why are you allowing fear to erode your faith? And at 1.30 in the morning, I'm right, God. I'm going to turn again. Church, what do you need to turn from? What do you need to turn from right now? The passage finishes off pretty miraculously in verse 41. 
by the way, after it says, Peter went on to preach for a long time, all right, which we're not going to do, I'm done. So we're not going to continue to preach for a long time. I'm not filling in the blanks. Okay, we're done. But then it says this, that because of what Jesus said and the, the power of the Holy Spirit, all right, more than 3,000 people that day were saved. More than 3,000 people that day, once and for all, began to understand the full power of the Holy Spirit, chose not to miss who Jesus was, all right, and chose to repent or turn from their sins. And so as I wrap up this sermon right now, I'm going to invite Steve to come up here, and he's going to close us out. But standing on Pentecost Sunday, 2,000 plus years removed from the first Pentecost Sunday, I'm going to encourage you, don't take this for my words. Go back today and read Peter's message. And then maybe just ask yourself those three questions in hopes that we wouldn't miss the one who made it all possible in hopes that we could maybe seek the freedom that Jesus has purchased from us and also receive the power that he has given to us. Thanks, guys.